If you were here in Sunday School Hour, I mentioned that I'm beginning two series that I'll continue when I return in May and June for about six weeks during the second half of your pastor's sabbatical, I understand. That's what's going on. And therefore, I look forward to picking up in the Gospel of Luke after this particular message and picking up in Leviticus after the message this evening, picking up in Hebrews in Sunday school class if I'm teaching that for a little while also. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Luke 4, his public ministry, I should say, in Luke 4, and we're going to look at verses 14 and following. And as Jesus preaches in Nazareth, notice how the people received him, or in this case, did not receive him. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all, and he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to None of them, but only to a widow in Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill, on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of God. May we receive it with faith. Let's ask for God's blessing. Lord God, help us now to understand and to believe your word. We ask humbly, because of our hard hearts, we need your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. I 
I meant to tell you a bit about myself during Sunday school hour, and I might have forgotten to do that. So I'll tell you about myself a little bit now. I grew up up north, and I moved down with my family to Charlotte, North Carolina in 1985. And even though there are many Yankees in Charlotte, we still once in a while get the statement, y'all ain't from around here, are you? We became gradually accustomed to colorful southern expressions, like y'all. My daughter still says fixin' to, like she was native to it. But we were 17 years in the south, and then we moved back up to Dayton, in the mid-2000s, and I had picked up some of these southern expressions, evidently, without knowing it, and we had, in this church, banquet after banquet, reception after reception. I was the new pastor, after all, and so one of my earlier sermons, I said to them, this here is the Eatonist church I've ever been in. Now, I presume some of you know that word. Uh, It's an expression that means we eat a lot. But Eatonist was not familiar to most of the people in Dayton, Ohio. And I haven't heard the word since, by the way, either the North or the South, but I thought I knew it. Everybody was pretty much puzzled. After the sermon, one lady came up to me and said, when you said we were the Eatonist, I thought you said we were the heathenist church I've ever been in. And then she said something just absolutely remarkable. She said, at the moment, she said, well, if the pastor thinks that, we better listen. I thought, you've got to be kidding me. She was willing to accept that label, not the Eatonist, but the heathenist church. Maybe we have something to learn. I suppose Jesus comes to Madison, Alabama to preach a sermon, and he says, you sinners need me more than anybody else. What would you think? Would your feathers be a little ruffled? Seriously? Talk to somebody else down the street. We can't be all that bad. Would you realize the depth of your need of the Savior if he came to tell you that? In other words, would you believe what he said? And that's the title of the message. He comes to his own hometown, Nazareth, and would they believe it when he told them, of their great need, because the Messiah comes to help the supremely needy, assuming you believe you are among those most heathenous people on the face of the earth by birth. Now remember that he had had previous appearances throughout Galilee, and I read verses 14 and 15 to you, and they heard rumors about him, realizing that many people were marveling at his works and his words. And he had not yet performed miracles in his hometown of Nazareth or proclaimed the gospel. And so the people were curious. And as a rabbi, as he was acknowledged to be, he was given the opportunity and privilege to read the scripture and comment upon it. Now, we're not familiar with the synagogue worship service. We ought to be. We do some of the same things. But the synagogue service would be composed of singing a number of psalms. They would also have the famous Shema, which is Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. For those of you who don't know Hebrew, 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's Deuteronomy 6, 4. There were many other benedictions and prayers for the land, for Jerusalem, for being good and doing good, typically, for forgiveness, to their credit, for even reviving the dead, should that be possible. And these blessings would include such things as Baruch, Atah Aronai, that would be, blessed be the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then at the very end, there would be the Aaronic benediction. Some of you are familiar with that. It goes in Hebrew, means the Lord bless you and keep you. I'll spell you the rest of the Hebrew. But that's what they would hear. And they would have that blessedness pronounced upon them at the end of the worship service. And the Messiah himself comes to read the scripture, to talk about it, and presumably, eventually, to give blessing to the people who heard and believed the word. The scripture proclaims, indeed, the kingdom of the Messiah. We see it in verses 16 and following, and Jesus happened to read Isaiah 61. It's very possible that was the reading for the day. In a way, it wouldn't have mattered what he read, because it would all be about him, but in God's providence, it was a particularly appropriate passage, Isaiah 61. And so, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And so it went that he went and closed the book, and then he sat down, which was the custom when you preach, you sit down in those days. And then he would explain what the passage meant. Now, of course, any other rabbi would be talking about somebody else, be talking about the Messiah, I hope they would see, when he would eventually come, isn't it amazing? The Messiah comes and reads about himself and does not hesitate to say in their hearing, this scripture is about me. And so he was explaining, and no doubt he did, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him to anoint him, and the word anointed means Mashiach, or the Messiah, is the anointed one, to proclaim good news to the poor. And so Jesus would minister to widows, orphans, tax collectors, and sinners. Matthew 5 talks about blessed are the poor in spirit, and that's likely the meaning here. If you are poor, you know your need. If you're not so poor, you might not think you have many needs. So Jesus would often minister to those who knew their need, to the outcasts, to the lepers, to the sinners, to tax collectors, widows and orphans. Good news, in other words, to the poor. Second, liberty to the captives. To, he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now we might think of those who were in jail or POWs uh, taken captive maybe to Babylon one day. Well, now they were out of Babylon. They might not think of themselves too much as captives, although they didn't like Rome very much either. But here it's more likely to be that Jesus meant those captive to the love of money, to Satan, as many of them would, he would say to them, were of their father, the devil. 
and to guilt over sin, owing God a debt you cannot pay, you are captive to sin, ultimately. And Jesus, therefore, would bring the good news of the gospel to those who are under the power of the evil one, especially in dramatic ways like casting out demons, as he often did, to proclaim them to be free from the tyranny of the evil one, but also deliver them from their greed or their avarice or their love of money or whatever it was. He would proclaim liberty to those kind of captives. And also recovery of sight to the blind. And of course we know that Jesus would give sight to the actual blind. The most famous one in my mind is from John 9, where the man was born blind and Jesus healed him. Ironically, the Pharisees wanted to know who had healed you because it's the Sabbath. And of course he says, well, it's this man Jesus and we don't know where he's come from, I guess. The Pharisees thought to themselves and said, who in the world is that guy? And stop talking about him. And then, of course, the blind man says, All I know is, once I was blind, and now I can see. And then he goes and gives it to the Pharisees. It's a strange thing. You think you can see, but you're really blind. They did not like that very much. And they cast him out of the synagogue. In Acts 26, God comes, according to Paul's words to King Agrippa, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. God had said to Paul, the Gentiles might also have their eyes opened. This is Acts 26, 17. So that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So, we're talking here about spiritual needs, spiritual poverty of spirit, spiritual captivity to the devil, blindness to the truth, and Jesus, the Messiah, has come to deliver us from all of those ills, and then to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is the jubilee year. This is after seven times seven years, seven Sabbaths of years, 49 if you know your math, plus one, 50, 50th year of Jubilee. Now he also omits reading about the day of vengeance of our God, that's for later, but for now he emphasizes that salvation is found in the Messiah and the punchline is I am he. Now, they needed to realize that they were among the heathenest people in the world, though they were Jews. They needed to know, as Laodicea needed to know, I am rich, they would say, I have prospered, I need nothing. But they instead should have said, I am wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, the question is again, If Jesus were to come to you and call you such a heathen people as that, do you believe the Messiah comes to the poor in spirit? Or maybe you're not really poor in spirit. Maybe you're afflicted with the universal affliction of all people, including Christians, 
that problem of pride. Do you believe the Messiah comes to the poor, or do you think you are not that needy? The scripture is fulfilled in the Messiah, as Jesus will come to say here, as we see in verse 20. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him, and he says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, it's likely this is just a very quick summary of what Jesus said. He was supposed to talk about the whole passage. And all spoke well of him, and he had many gracious words to say. But then they started to think, wait a minute, who is this guy? Who's this guy think he is? We know his dad. He was a carpenter. He made that footstool in my mother's house. Did a good job of it, but I thought he was just a carpenter. He was just a kid on the streets, and we saw him grow up. They did not think they were poor, needy, and blind, and they didn't know this was the Messiah, despite his gracious words, and despite the fact that they knew he had done miracles, proving his power and authority, they felt free to ignore him, but worse, to despise and reject him. He came into his own, John was, one says, and his own received him not. Now the question again for us who say we know the Messiah, do you believe, truly believe, that Jesus is the Messiah? I hope you do. But we must ask ourselves that question. Do we really believe him to be truly the Son of God, eternally? The book of Hebrews, we talked about it this morning, shows that he is greater than all alternatives. Or maybe you just don't like the message. Maybe you hear a sermon once in a while about sin. You go, well, at least I haven't sinned like that. Or I haven't sinned the way somebody else does. That guy, he really needs the Lord. Not so much for me. And you don't really believe in the messenger who gives you that message because all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for every one of you for doctrine, yes, but for reproof. This is what you've done. Correction. Turn from that sin and learn the ways of the Lord, instruction in righteousness. The whole word of God is like that. And every time we hear the word of God preached, we ought to say, yes, I need the Savior more than I ever knew. The Messiah here comes, tells the people of his hometown, I am the Messiah. And what did they think? At first they were impressed, but then they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And then Jesus knew what else they were thinking. And you have to figure that out from what he said to them. Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. In other words, if you think we're poor and needy, maybe you're the one that's poor and needy. You're the one who has to take this word and be corrected by it. They thought he had sinned by declaring himself to be the Messiah. In fact, if he was the Messiah and said so, they should believe him. If he wasn't, he was committing blasphemy, claiming to be God, which he often did, and the people would not only here and now, but elsewhere take up stones to throw at him to kill him because they believed that's what he deserved. 
arrogance, pride, ingratitude. They heard of the miracles. They wanted him to do more there in Nazareth. And of course, if Jesus sees unbelief, he basically says, look, if you would believe Moses and the prophets, you might believe me. If you don't believe Moses and the prophets, you won't believe in me either. So you start, you just start looking at the word of God and believe it and confess your sins. And the evidence is not the problem. The problem is not enough evidence. The problem is the hardness of heart of the people. Sinners denying that they were sinners. Needy denying that they were needy. Blind denying that they were blind. This is what they were doing right now, right then. And Jesus, of course, knew it. And he knew they wanted to see more miracles. What you have done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. But he knew they wouldn't accept that either. He would say in another place, they wouldn't even believe if someone were raised from the dead, if they're that hard-hearted. And of course, that's what happened when Jesus was raised from the dead. Despite that, people denied him. Truly, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. That's his hometown, and other prophets have been rejected in their own hometowns. And he gives them a couple of illustrations of prophets who were rejected and instead went to bless others. And he gives the illustration of Elijah and Elisha. Now, when I was a kid, I mixed them up. They kind of rhyme. The way I remember is their alphabetical order, if you know your alphabet, Elijah, Elisha. Elijah was the one who mostly proclaimed judgment. So there's the J. And then Elisha, I don't have a good memory trick for that one, but he's the other one. He's the one that mostly showed mercy and healing, though he did also pronounce judgment of God. So first he says, there was Elijah. The widow was there in Zarephath. And where was Zarephath? Well, it was in Sidon, which is not Israel. So he reminds them that in the days of Elijah, when there was this great drought, the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, great famine, nobody had anything to eat, was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Now it's significant to understand that she was not Jewish. She was a Gentile. And she welcomed the prophet as the Lord your God lives, she would say. I have nothing. But Elijah says to her, do not fear. Trust the Lord, in other words. And take a little cake and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, whom you seem to know about, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And the key verse is this one. And she went and did as Elijah said. She trusted the word of the Lord through Elijah and then obeyed, expecting God to provide, which he did in an amazing way. And she and her household ate for many days, and the jar of flour was not spent, neither did a jug of oil become empty. Just imagine never having to go to the grocery store again. You open up the cabinet, more food. That's what happened to her. That's how she lived. 
in this time of famine, according to the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. This Gentile believed the word of the Lord, but she knew her poverty. She knew she wasn't going to live much longer. What I have, I can share with you, but it's, that's it. When it's gone, it's gone. Desperate need expressed eventually in faith in the word of God. Well, that's not enough. He says, well, you might not have gotten the point. Let me tell you about another prophet, Elisha. Remember the next one. And in the days of Elisha, what happened there? In the days of the time of the prophet Elisha, none of the lepers in Israel was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Now make, understand, Syrian, that's not only a Gentile, but it's a general in the enemy army. The Syrians were their enemies. And yet, because Naaman had heard about the prophet, he came to ask to be healed of leprosy. And you may remember the story first. Elisha says, go wash in the Jordan. And Naaman, the Jordan, that's a dirty, filthy river. We have better rivers home at home in Syria. But his servant said, look, why don't you just do what they say, what he says? Will you not do it, the servants say? Hasn't he just said to you, wash and be clean? Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what you need? You need to listen to the word of God. If he tells you to do that, then you better do it. And though he was reluctant, he went down at last and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. That's how pure, clean, and youthful Naaman became. And then Naaman said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So, what is Jesus saying? The Gentiles in Zarephath are better than you because they believe the word of the prophet. This enemy general from Syria is better than you. Even though he's the enemy, he believed in the God of Israel and was healed of his leprosy. Naaman is better than you. Not because of his own merits, but because of his faith and trust in the word of God through the prophet. And here the word of God comes and speaks the word of God to them in their presence. And they say, I don't think so. Think about it. The terrorists, the unclean, are better than you. Pure insult if it is not true. But this would not stand. The service was not over. They wouldn't wait for any benediction from the hands of the Messiah. Instead, they decided to end the worship service in a murder. They're going to kill the Messiah, or try to, and they decided it was a great and good and noble thing to throw him off a cliff. Amen. Horrible. That's what they tried to do. Of course, they didn't succeed. Later on, Jesus would submit to the will of the Father. But they were so angry. They were filled with wrath. 
They drove him out of the town. Can you imagine the, the guy speaking there in the pulpit or sitting down next to it, and suddenly he's being hustled out of the room, driven to the edge of the town, getting ready to be thrown off of a cliff at the end of the worship service, which never even came, and then passing through their midst, he went away. Now, this was not the only time that Jesus would talk about the gospel preached to the Gentiles. He would go to the Gentiles, as Elisha and Elijah did. He healed the servant of the Roman centurion who believed that even though Jesus wasn't present, Jesus could heal him from a distance. And Jesus says, I have not seen such great faith, yes, not in Israel. Another enemy healed because of his faith, a Roman of all people. He also touched the unclean leper and healed him. He healed the daughter of a Canaanite woman, by the way, similar to Tyre and Sidon with Elijah. And he healed her because she insisted, because she knew her great need. The apostles, by the way, would do the exact same thing. They would go to the Jews first, but so often the Jews rejected them. And they went instead, as Paul mostly did, to the Gentiles. You remember that? Not many lepers were cleansed. Not many hungry received food. Only those who trust in the Lord and his messenger. Psalm 72 says he saves those who have no helper. Is that you? What are you depending upon right now? Your health, your strength, your wisdom, your education, our country, something, anything else to be your savior, your preserver, your help, and your strength? Or is God alone the joy of your heart? The prophets would preach to those who would not believe so that the gospel would come to others who would believe. So now, once again, do you believe it? Do you believe that you are poor and needy and blind and naked? Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? And do you believe that the Messiah saves the unclean and the abandoned and the slaves? And finally, do you know that you are one of them? Shall we pray? Lord, we cry out to you in time of need because of our hardness of heart. We have not often heard your word with gladness. We have not been eager to hear of our sins and our need of a Savior. Maybe at one time we might have felt as though we could admit it, but even now sometimes as believers, knowing you for many years, we forget our sin when in fact we ought to know even more how sinful we are and the deceitfulness of our hearts that would teach us that we don't need the Lord. Teach us again, even today, that we do need you. In Jesus' name.